Well, this will be uh, the most controversial episode ever of Inappropriate Earl because my guest on my couch right now is a man who I think a lot of people think I hate. Uh, I don't. Uh, I disagree with him on some things. And uh, we had an interesting relationship. You know, I enjoyed our non-comedy conversations, uh, probably more than uh, our comedy conversations, just because we had a lot of similar interests. Um, all things 80s we love, the music, uh, favorite TV shows. We like the same TV shows, uh, Sons of Anarchy, The Shield, The Wire. So we had some really cool conversations. And then, uh, I don't know, somewhere uh, along the way, uh, I was just confused about how I was thought of as a comic by this next guest and i think a lot of comics were in their own individual uh relationships with him but uh i'm proud to welcome to inappropriate earl the former one-time talent coordinator at the comedy store mr tommy morris hey <laughs> thanks for having me here earl i really appreciate it no it's uh you know i've always wanted to have you on because i think people thought that uh for some reason that I hated you, and I never did. Um, Anybody can think anything they want about me. I've always been that way. You know, I, it, it doesn't ma- It didn't matter to me when I was set into motion for what I felt I was doing because Mitzi and I had spent so much time together. People love to jump over the fact that I spent 10 years, three days a week, putting her to bed most of the time, alone, talking, speaking, absorbing, helping psychologically journeying through with Mitzi Shore. You know, you'll, you'll meet somebody in your lifetime. Uh, uh, older people will know people all their life, but I have found a lot of times when they get older, they'll meet somebody and they'll begin to talk about things they never talked to anybody about. And that's what happened to me with Mitzi. She told me about her youth. She told me about the truth of her marriage, how she felt about things, people, her philosophies, her moodiness. And, you know, she's brilliant, she's a genius artist, but she's not always necessarily nice. And as we journey into the things people want to ask me, ask anybody who knew me my first four years when I was just the door guy and I was selling tickets, I wasn't the same way. She got on me for being too kind to untalented people, and she, she beat on me about that. She didn't want me to be mean, but she wanted me to avoid things. And she also wanted me to realize that sometimes things take time. That's why we'll say I may have conversations with people like I had with you that you felt was leading somewhere and you think it didn't happen. That's just because the amount of time that went by that I was observing or thinking didn't go by or what I felt or whatever. The only thing I will say before we go any further, too, is that the only thing that did happen to me is I came, became weakened, I'd say, my last six months because of a lot of personal stuff I was dealing with. And that's one of the things that made me become vulnerable. And that's one of the it's it's not the only reason I'm probably not there anymore. But in L.A., as any of you know, venturing, you can't be vulnerable once you are, then that weakens you. And that came to be the end. But the end isn't what the most important thing is. It's all the part in between. Oh, that's what I want to get into. Mitzi and who she is and how she felt and what we went through and all that stuff. I, I would only hope people want to know some of that. And I'll be glad to answer individual questions on any comic and how I feel about him and why I did this and why I did that. And we'll tell the truth. We will tell the truth. That's That's the thing people always want to be afraid of as a comedian is the truth now. Don't ask me the truth because I'll tell it to you. That's why Mitzi liked me. She goes, you are so truthful. 
It's the truth, but it's not always make you popular, right? Just ask Ma- Matt Claybrooks. You hear right. that? Hear you hear that story? And now Matt Claybrooks is uh, one of Chris Rock's uh, writers. Absolutely, uh, a fellow uh, comic who was uh, associated with Chris Rock a lot. Well, what's I, I don't know that well, story. Well, first he got a showcase when Mitzi was still looking at people, and she looked at him for the way she does sometimes. And understand, I have to take a side note. Mitzi said she got to the point in her life where she didn't even have to see someone go on. She just look at them and see how they move, how they talk as a person, and she could say whether they have it or not. Matt got up, he pulled his hat around backwards, and even though she was older, he says, how the fuck are all you motherfuckers doing in this place tonight? First line in an 8 o'clock uh, main room bringer show where, she, where we have a showcase set up. That's the way we ended up doing them. As I was doing it for Mitzi at the end in a bringer show on a, on a Thursday or Friday with, you know, 100 people, an audience. And then we just put the five showcases in the middle of the bringer show. And it worked out well. I thought it did. And so she looked at him and she's just like, oh, God, forget it. And I went, Mitzi, this, he writes with Chris Rock. Chris wants you to see him. He goes, well, tell him to clean it up. <laughs> so he didn't say so he worked out for a long time and he wanted spots and I didn't move on because I wasn't feeling it I'm sorry I mean he writes for Chris he is a good performer he, he opens for Chris I'm sure he has great affinity but for what I felt the very small small exclusive special club of the comedy store was I didn't see him moving in until I felt I had to see something and he was changing so I will say that Matt would have probably crossed over in my world, at least, because he was finally changing. He wasn't trying so hard. He was letting it come out. But he got mad at me one day in the front of the OR, and Quincy Weekly is my witness, and he called me a racist and all this other stuff, you know, stuff propelled into motion by Doc Willis a long time ago. Another person who's, he's averagely talented, and he decided to make that stuff about that's what I am because he wasn't being accepted. You know, I will always know of Doc on a side note, that Mitzi just said to me, he's a shrimpo. Get him out of here. He's got needy energy. She didn't want him there. But I always stood up for him because I liked him and other people, and he stayed there, and now he's a legend and all this other stuff. But it's, it, he doesn't know Mitzi. He tries to quote her and talk about her, but he doesn't know her. But going back over to Matt Claybrooks, he said all that stuff to me, and Quincy Weekly came out, and he said to me, he goes, don't talk to him like that and stuff like that. And then... Matt Claybrooks called him some stuff, and Quincy was, like, offended. So this is why I'm telling you this story, not to show that I'm a jerk, is to tell you that after he left, he came back a day or so later, and maybe a week later, and he quite came walking up the, th- the stairs, and instead of being like I'm supposed to be mad at him, this is what I was like, Earl. I was like, all right, Matt. I said, I know, man. This is an emotional journey, becoming a comedian, Okay. I said, just do me a favor. Don't say the racist stuff. I don't need that. Just do what everyone else does behind my back and say, fuck Tommy. And he laughed. And then he came in and he started working out again. And for all the years Chris Rock came and worked out in that club, he would let me know through somebody he was going to work out maybe once in a while and say, I'd like to go on. But ironically enough, the next time I saw Chris and he came walking up the stairs he put his face in the cover booth with me. He shook my hand, stuck my hand. He goes, Tommy, I'd like to go on tonight. That made me feel that there was some sort of a conversation that happened between those two. To understand that the store was a cool place. That's what I was doing there, Earl. I was trying to keep it cool. Not like gay drama stuff. 
not like woman stuff. You talk that way to me. You're not going to come back. Even Mitzi would have banned someone like Matt forever, but I was cool about it. That's the reason I gave that story. That's extreme anger coming at me that we end up turning it around into like, dude, it's okay to be angry. Just come in and prove yourself with what you do on stage. That's what you got to do at the store. That was Mitzi's whole thing. Here's a quote from her, a line. She says to me, she goes, I'll give you an example of what I'm looking for. She goes, do you bring heat on the stage? Well, do you? She goes, if you do, well, you can sit here. You can go up there. She goes, if you don't, and get the fuck out of the way. This is L.A. This is the big leagues. I'm looking at a freaking 75-year-old woman talking to me like this. But that's the serious enough. All right, I've talked enough. Go ahead. And, no, uh, no. It's Listen, I, I, people don't want to hear my voice today. They yeah, wanna... but the thing is, is that I know so much. That's the shame that I like. That I miss of it all. Is the com- when I, if you want to just go right from the start of it, you know, me and the comedy store. It's like people wondered how that even came about. Paulie talked to me one time on his podcast, and he knew. And I, I talked to young guys about it. But I sold a show to New Waves called Zootopia, which I got made fun of. And I played a character named Takini Tommy. It was kind of, it was a mock of Steve Irwin, but they liked him. They even talked to me at E about doing him. These are real things in my life. I did stuff. I was on TV five days a week in Florida on Fox in a show called Club Access. And I was the host. So I'd been on in that situation before. So I came out here and I thought I was going to do that show. New Waves was now really big, but they were still building then. If I remember right, their main contract was all the trailers for DreamWorks, which is enough to keep your company afloat, I'm sure. And, uh, but they now do many things. But point being is the show got picked up. It was Utopia, uh, Raquel Gardner. She's an actress still here in L.A. She she's, uh, does commercials. She was on Renegade. She was on a soap opera. She's on all these things. But we sold it, and something happened after I decided to move here. They told me to move here. I would not have moved here to L.A. at 39 years old. But I didn't have something to do. I didn't want to come here and die. I had it made where I was. I was a big fish in a small pond. I was living at the beach. I was managing a nightclub. I knew everybody. I didn't pay for a dinner anywhere. Everybody knew my name. They used to say I should run for the mayor. I was living a good life, but I took the risk. I came here. The show's meandering. So when we stayed out here in 98, Stephanie and I, my girlfriend and I, she said to me one day, we were sitting at the Hyatt in West Hollywood. She just looked out to the right there and she goes, if we ever move here... You had to work down there at the comedy store. So you think so? She goes, well, yeah. I mean, you're too old to work in dance clubs, which I had been working in. She goes, and you like to blab. You'll fit right in. So I made a list after I'd been here in L.A. for a month of all the comedy clubs, all of them. And I called the Improv. I called the Laugh Factory. I called Ha Ha. And then I called the comedy store. And they were the nicest. It was Freddie Lockhart and Steve Simone on the phone together. And they, Freddie answered it, and I said, are you guys accepting applications? And instead of asking me all these snooty questions like everyone else, Freddie just goes, sure, come on over. So I went over. I filled out the application. When I talked to them, I was just telling them that I worked in nightclubs for years, and I didn't mind saying the same information, all this stuff. Turns out Steve Simone tells me, and I, I, I think I'm right, he says he thought I was like a cartoon. So he went and told the manager, Rob Rothman, that he should call me. They called me. He asked me to come over. He asked if I was a comedian. I said, I didn't know. People always told me I should do it. I mean, I was a music theater major in school. I went on scholarship and stuff, sang in rock bands, played acoustic guitar summers at the shore, emceed male dance reviews for 10 years. I've done a lot of stuff. MDA auctions. I am a performer by nature. So people have always told me, you should do stand-up. You're funny. And I was like, all right. 
I said, I'm not sure. I said, but I would like to try to work there. But he goes, come on over. I went and walked my dog. I got in the car and I drove over. I found out later that Rob had called back and left a message on my, uh, my answering machine telling me not to come. Well, went anyway, he went in. He decided to meet me at Ari Shafir, Ari Shafir, do a phone uh, interview with me, like a pretend phone interview. I answered the questions that were asked me. I hung the phone up and Rob Rothman turned to me and goes, that's the best phone audition I've ever heard. You really want to work here? You don't pay anything. I said, I don't care. It was Saturday and Sunday. So that was my first shifts on the phone, Saturday and Sunday. Work on the phone for Saturday and Sunday. And I try to pick up shifts. Skippy Simon, David Taylor, Freddie Lockhart. These were the phone guys then. And I just tried to pick up shifts. Skippy gave up the most uh, because he'd already been doing it for a while. Not because he didn't, he, you know, they get burnt out on that. And then I, the accountant guy came down to me after about, I'd been there about a month. I even went through 9-11 and everything. This is September 2001. You know, I started August 26th or something. And uh, got through that month. And after about the end of the month, September, he goes, I don't, he goes, this club, I don't know if you know about this club. He goes, it's doing very badly. It's losing money. He goes, they're afraid it's going to close. Uh, the owner is Mitzi. I don't know if you've met her, but she's actually using a lot of her own savings to support it because she will only run it a certain way. She's stubborn, which she was, you know, he goes, but you have actually slightly increased the sales a little bit by the way you work on the phone. He goes, I come down and use the restroom. I told him, so I'm a son of a salesman. I don't want to sell products, but I like selling an event. I did it in Jacksonville. Well, I was well known there, not for no reason. It's positive. I liked it. And he, Jesus, Earl, I think I told you, we had Kansas at the comedy store. We had, uh, we had Cheap Trick. We had uh, Little River Band. A lot of the 80s, uh, like Poison. Yeah. Would, or not the, owner band, there, but... the owner there loved me. He let me use my artistic insight. I mean, we started off one way, and then in the 80s, I got to do a lover boy with all five original members. I saw that. I picked them up at the, at the bus stop. I saw the lead singer, Mike Reno, was this big fat guy. And we had an older guy, George, working there, and he goes... That guy's fat, man, but why are the girls still talking to him? I said, because he can hit the notes, man. <laughs> when you can hit the high notes, they don't care if you're fat. That does it for women. So anyway, I, this, he told me I was increasing the sales a little bit. Come in early October, come walk in one day. I mean, I'd gotten the phone. Give me Duncan. Who is this? Why'd you let the phone ring so many times? These are the things all I ever heard before I met her. What's your fucking name again? <laughs> Give me Duncan. What do you mean he's not there? How many tickets are sold? This is all the stuff that she asked. You know what I mean? So I walk in, and there she is sitting in a booth. And I'm telling you, I have met thousands and thousands of people in my life. But the second I looked at her, she had a presence. I felt some different energy with her. So I walked up to her. I said, hi, Mitzi. And she looked at me. She went like this, like a little bit of a double take. I said, I'm Tommy. I'm your employee. She goes, oh, my God, you're cute. And I said, went up to the phone. The next day I came to work. Next day, Duncan Trussell, love him. Dude, because Missy wants you to go up to, to her house with me today. I said, that's great. You know why? Because you don't question when a genius like Mitzi wants to see you. Just be glad she even finds you interesting. So we went up there, went into her house, and she's like, say, she's sitting with this back stuff on. And remember, even though Mitzi was sick, she was still 100% in her mind. Like she was aware of what was going on. She's just in pain. And she said to me, she goes, I'm very sorry we had to meet up here today. My back's really bothering me. And I went, that's fine. It's an honor to come to your home. Your home's beautiful. And she smiled at me and she looked at me and she goes, I love my home. I am as proud of my home as I am the store. 
I said, that's great, Mitzi. And so then she says to me, she goes, so you're becoming interested in my place, huh? And I went, yes, I am. She goes, first thing to know, it's not a nightclub. It's an artist colony. Do you know what that means? And I actually thought this, Earl, because I wasn't a kid. I said, I think I do. And she goes, I think you do too. And then she didn't explain any more. She just, that was the high thinking. She's not one of these people that go, well, let me tell you about my place now. I'm going to tell you. She just let me absorb it the way I saw it. And then she says her most prolific line, which I have told many people. She looks out her window. And this is when I really thought to myself, oh, my God. Now I know why she did what she did. She's a freaking genius. She goes, when I find somebody with the gift, I give them an arena to develop in. If they work hard at it and they want it badly enough, magical things happen. And what I did with Mitzi, an example of that great sentence is I was able to translate her a little bit. She talks so much like an artist all the time. She didn't talk in normal terms. She did not talk like a normal person. I'm not kidding you. She talked in different types of terms. I translated that into talent, work ethic, and desire. And she said that I was correct. You'll never meet a star or maybe even a really successful person that doesn't have talent, work ethic, and desire. That is why when someone says talent isn't enough, they're right. Because you have to have work ethic and desire too. The only thing she told me that if I felt I saw someone who was really talented and they didn't have great work ethic, she said for me to take that talented person and throw them in the middle of other more aggressive people. And she says it'll rub off. That's what you do, you know? So um, that was it. So with Mitzi, that was the beginning of our relationship. And then I started driving her to doctor's appointments. And then I got to, uh, you know, she started wanting me to sit next to her in the OR. She just took a liking to me that way. And then we we finally, one day, I would imitate people. I'm a natural mimic. So I'd be driving her to a doctor's appointment. She goes, how was the show last night? So Eddie Griffin came in for three hours. Mm, White people are stupid. And I'm God, you know, and she'd be like, oh, my God, that's so funny. You did that perfectly. So I would tell her stories and all this stuff. And then she just said to me one day, and this is important, Earl, this is important. She said to me, she goes, I've been thinking about you. And I go, "Okay." she goes, I think you should be a comedian. I think you'd give it a nice twist. I said, you know, Mitzi, I've been thinking about that. But one of the things I've noticed while I've been here about people that want to do it, which you're like too, is they're obsessed with it. I am. And she said to me, she goes, that's true. I said, I will never be obsessed with doing stand-up. I know I can do it. I know I have the skill set. So I would be more wanting to sing, which is one of my main talents, and play guitar and stuff. But I said, I, I am becoming very, very interested, Mitzi, in you. I have never met anybody like you before. And she says in a beautiful way, she goes, nor will you ever again, honey. No, I mean, I'm, uh, so, I never have met her. So I, that's uh, one of the regrets I have is not being able to well, showcase for her. That's something that I did. Yeah, but if I, she tested me for years, Earl. So we begin our relationship and then she starts doing things. The changing point came in 2006 after I was the talent coordinator for a year is we had a show lined up. 
I had done the lineups with her on Monday. It was Saturday. I changed a few things, and then Argus calls out. At the, he goes, I, didn't, I told him I was out of town this weekend. I'm not there. And I went, oh, okay. So I decided, and because he had just come in, to put Steve Byrne in the 930 spot, the 915 spot. Here comes Mitzi. She comes in to watch it. Oh, my God, I've changed your lineup. I'm nervous, right? So she watches the show, and then Alfred comes up, and he goes, Michelle wants you to drive her home, Tommy. He goes, I'm going to leave now. I go, I, why do I have to drive her home? She says, she wants to talk to you. I'm like, no. So I go to drive her home, and she's listening to me. She goes, I have never seen a show lined up like that before, like that in my life. Did you change anything to my lineups? And then she says, you think carefully before you utter your next word. I said, yes, I, I just rearranged him a little bit. She goes, why did you do that? I said, because I'm there every night and I just thought it might flow a little better. I thought you picked all the right people. I thought you had parts right, but I thought a few parts would be different. And I swear, Earl, it's like old Mitzi might have really fired me. You know, that's the whole thing. I wouldn't have been there 13 years if Mitzi was 100% because she never kept anyone around that long, barely ever. Maybe I would have. But she said to me, she goes, well, you might just have a gift. She goes, I have so much I'd like to teach you, and I am tired, and I don't feel good. So I know you don't, Mitzi. I said, this is meant to be. She goes, I've meditated on that. God sent you to me. I need somebody to show a few things before I can't. And I said, I'm here. She goes, I know that's why you're here. You just have to promise me that if you ever leave, she goes, that you'll teach it to another. I said, I will. Sorry about that. No, it's all good. A lot of people want to talk to you right now, Tom. No, it's not, it's not a lot of people. It's probably just one person. So what, what I was going to say with that with Mitzi was, um, yeah, what I was going to say with Mitzi is that from that point on, we had a different type of relationship. Another really big turning point in it all, too, was, um, was her finding out how old I was. In 2002, after I'd been there about a year, Mitzi calls up on my birthday, May 15th, and she goes, and I heard from Luca Palaka, it's your birthday. And I went, yeah, it is. She goes, how old are you, honey? I said, I'm 40. She goes, what? I said, yeah, I know. I'm old. I'm over the hill. And then this is with Mitzi. Always said the opposite of what she thought she was going to say. She goes, I wasn't thinking that at all. I just found out that I'm not talking to a kid. I said, no. And she talked to me differently after that, Earl. Do you understand? I wasn't a 23-year-old or a 30-year-old trying to be a comic there. I was a grown man. So I became a confidant that she began to hold. And, say, and that's when I saw how funny she was. What? Mitzi Shore watching an OR show? Ask Argus. He'll tell you, too. Mitzi Shore watching an OR show? Oh, God. Give him the light. What's wrong with this guy? What a maroon. I mean, all these comments, you know what I mean? Oh, ugly. God. Now, that's the thing a lot of people, uh, I don't want to say accused you of, but is that you past good-looking people if they maybe weren't the funniest. No. Did, so that's not true. No, it's not that it's not true. It's that I wasn't afraid to do that, too. That's another story. And here's a true story, right, from Mitzi. I'm walking out into the parking lot in 2009 with her. 
I think it was about then. And she looks at Alfred and she goes, Tommy's turning the store into the beauty store. I said, she goes, it's all right, honey. You're not intimidated by good looking people trying to be funny. You know why? I go, why? She goes, because you're not bad to look at yourself. (laughs) She goes, a lot of times comedians don't want to give somebody who's okay looking a chance because they think, why are you doing this? It's not the typical person that tries. So my only thing was, is I wasn't holding a wall up. That's all. And I just felt Chris D'Elia proved himself to me. Well, I wasn't talking about Chris. I mean, I was, uh, you know. Whitney, I showcased for Mitzi twice. Whitney did what I asked, which was just to be clean for Mitzi. I said, Mitzi, I've seen Mitzi laugh at really dirty people, which is no problem at all. But she felt like you needed to be intelligent enough to know what freaking time of night it was. So if you're showcasing at 8 o'clock, you don't come out with vagina jokes because it's 8 o'clock. So... But Whitney went through her set, and what she said about Whitney was, she goes, all right, I know you want me to bring her in. You can bring her in. She goes, look at her, though. She looks great on film. That'll be great for her career. And she renamed her later Hedy Lamar. And I don't know who Hedy Lamar is. I do. Is. I'm old enough. You know, yeah, but for anybody out there, Hedy Lamar is a famous movie star, but she also uh, was in Samson and Delilah, would be the biggest one you ever saw her in. But she was also a really brilliant woman who was a political activist, from what I understand. Right. So Mitzi was recognizing that Whitney had beauty and she could tell brains. And, you know, Delia, was, he has it all. The looks, the work ethic. You talk about work ethic. Yeah, but he knows he went through things. And that's why I left an effect with him that he doesn't have to go out and talk about in his life. But he expressed to me. And that was that. When Chris started, he had specific people he was admiring and slightly emulating, which is common, not unusual for lots of people, okay? And um, his two big people I felt he was emulating a little bit were Dane Cook and Joe Coy. And uh, Dane Cook has got an energy field that puts out and makes people laugh, but he's not skilled in the... uh, in the tickle you as a feather with clever wit department, which is where I, he does not get validated by comedians so much. I will give him credit for what he's achieved and he puts out great energy waves, but there's not finesse to it. And that's what all the, that's why he, that's why, you know, and I don't think that's right. And then with the Joe Coy guy, it's like, yeah, I understand, but it's the energy gets so amped up sometimes it doesn't have peaks and valleys. So with Chris, even though he proved himself in the belly room, we did something with Chris that specifically affected him. And that is that I, I wanted to work him hard, but I decided to go for a Mitzi validation because I knew I was going to get a hard time about it. So we're talking giving Chris three to four spots a week, right? Pretty close after he's passed. And that's a lot for someone who's just starting. You think you're supposed to wait, but I wanted to do it. So I let Mitzi look at him one more time and she called me back with Alfred and she doesn't ever say the same thing about anybody. She said, that kid you showed me tonight with the long hair. Oh God, he's exceptional. Work him hard, okay, honey? So I will, Mitzi. She goes, that's why the system is this way. When we see one like that, we work them hard so they can get ready. Got it. So, But what we gave Chris is we gave him a closing spot once a week. Dead end. Sometimes nobody. And I went upstairs one time, and he had one of those. I think it was on a Thursday. I came down, and... uh I walked through the OR. There was two people. Chris was sitting on a stool, and this is after doing it for about four months. 
he goes, I waited all day for this. And he was at the bottom. (laughs) And he built himself into a human being who goes into all these acts from that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. He, He layered himself back up. So that was why the OR late night. And like with Brent Warren, who's on... You know, undateable with him. Brent's big thing was I put him after Rick Ingram, which for a young kid is very hard, especially the way Rick used to work. I've been hearing Rick's doing a lot of material now, but you and I both know he refused to do material for God 10 years, right? And did did only pretty much crowd work, even though it was brilliant, but very hard to follow. It is because you... You know, if you go on after Rick, you you can't really play with the audience because he's already done it. So it's very intimidating to follow him. But but Brent did it. Brent showed me that he's a real bouncer backer, good reader. So he just, he kind of moved fast because he just couldn't deny that he was good, you know? But uh, yeah, you know, talk about that kind of aspect of it all. I don't, I just, I like to think about, this is the way it said to, I said to Mitzi, and this is a good way to say how I got propelled a little bit. I always had my ide- own ideas, but she would say things for me that were guidelines for me to understand. Said to her maybe like 2004, before I'm talent coordinator, I'm just talking to her. I said, Mitzi, I've come to the conclusion that the look is important to the comedian. Huh? She goes, the look is everything. Now, I didn't say they have to be just good looking. I meant the look. Because it has to be something that's that goes along with the material. And you know what? I go, what? She goes, if they don't have a look, you know what they are? I go, what? She goes, a writer. <laughs> now, there were rumors uh, going around that that's what was said about Louis C.K., that he was more a writer than a comic. I am like this with Louis C.K. I like him. I respect him. He's a comedian's, com- a comic's comic. They've been putting him as Poppins in the OR since I ever got there because I didn't start out. I just was doing what I was, you know, the Ari Shafir, who had already been with Mitzi for years, would walk up in 2002 and go, this guy, Louis C.K., is great. We're going to pop him in right now. And I'd be like, oh, should I call Mitzi? No, you don't need, Ari, you don't need to be calling Mitzi. He's going on. He's great. But when it comes down to a performer, no, it's, it's not his strongest suit. I think he's, a, he's become a good actor, but I have this imaginary thought that Ricky Gervais got around him and talked to him a little bit about it and gave him some tidbits since Ricky Gervais is so unbelievably acting-wise and comedic timing-wise and at befuddlement, brilliant. You know, and I've seen him walk into the comedy store, too, years and years ago, pay his cover and system paying, sit in the back of the room, and <laughs> all night long. So he's a big fan of it. But that's the thing with Louis. I, you know, I, there's many people that I think are really talented, but as far as like blow you away comics at the top of the food chain right now, it to me, it, I mean, it's hard to, I can't, I want to narrow on two people, but I, I get asked all the time, would you recommend, who would you recommend I take a look at? And I just find myself saying Bill Burr and Hannibal Burris. Like you just can't deny that those two guys take you on a ride that's great. And everyone else does too, you know? But those guys are like monsters, you know? Oh, they're uh, unbelievable. I mean, mean, it's just, and that's one of the last things I did at the store was pursuing Eric Andre and Hannibal Burris to come in. They didn't, you know, look asking for a showcase. I went after them. I didn't go do that very often. But I wanted both those guys in. Which is a great uh, argument from your side. You know, there were always... uh, Things that you might have not preferred, black comics. No, that's not it at all. 
But well, but I'm just saying what was out there, and you passed Jamar Neighbors, one of my uh, Willie well, Hunter, uh, Gerard Carmichael. So I mean, what I did with those three guys, they all came in at the same time. I looked into the open mic for a year, and I've, I was specifically looking for three African American male or female comics that were really we could put time into, and those were the three I arrived at at that time. And I I told Polly, Polly took a second look. I told Paul, I think Gerard was ready to be a paid regular right away because he could grow with those around him. And I just thought Willie and Jamar should be around. And he came back and Paulie's actually, and Willie Hunter knows this. He's proud of it. Paulie's the one who came back and goes, no, bro. He goes, you make the, the Gerard guys a paid regular, definitely. He goes, and then you make the Willie Hunter guy an employee. And then the Jamar guy's really good. He goes, but he's got he's to marinate for a while, which he did. Oh, he's great. So, yeah, but, but that was a very good call by Paulie. Because that's what the three of them needed. And Willie Hunter is part of that Willie, Tony Hinchcliffe, Benji, Matt Edgar. These guys really helped the store in the late 2000s as we were starting to get more and more young people come in. Convey the word to people. Do you know what I mean? They did more than work there. They imaged us. It was that last step into social media and its evolution that made it where almost a person isn't necessary anymore. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. When I got there in 2001, it was necessary for me to be a great phone guy because that's all there was. <laughs> all there was. And now by now, it's like they barely even anybody talks. They just look to see if there's a guest list. They just see who it is. They buy on their phone. So there's people still calling, but it's not that same type of a thing. I mean, I will say this in your defense, uh, in Adam's defense, but uh, I remember one night you were in the booth. Uh, I won't mention their names, but uh, an A-level comic comes up to you and basically says, I want to go on next. And you're like, well, can you wait one more? And and they basically said, no, I want to go next. And then a second A-level comic came up the stairs. I want to go on next. And then a comic that you, I would say, is a very high B-plus level comic was like, well, I'm on the lineup next. I want to go. And I was like, wow, this guy's job is hard. Uh, You know, here you had three egos, two of which were you know, the biggest of the big. And I'm like, this guy's job is hard. I mean, I might've disagreed with how I was treated to a degree, but that's where I will give you the respect of, I don't think, and I see it with Adam too. Uh, people complaining about their spots, you know, I'm not getting enough. And, uh, one case this particular comic gets three spots a week and they still want more. Uh, I mean, how did you mentally deal with basically everyone coming up to that booth, myself included, uh, wanting something from you? It's a, it's a needy energy. I don't know. I was just designed for it. It has a little bit to do with the way my life has been. Is I was never a recluse. I was always the popular guy. I was the lead singer of the band in high school. I had the lead in every play. I always had a girlfriend. So I was always someone who had a lot of energy like that coming at me in a different way. So I was used to people coming up to me having desires, and I gave everyone the credit. Mitzi told me, she says, you have a great understanding of the human psyche. She told me many times, she goes, all the psychiatrists and therapists, I said, you've helped me with my head to understand things the best. She goes, that's why I... and. She, I was told to be able to work freely there, which believe me, you know, uh, the Shore family still had to allow me to do. But that was her desire so that I could artistically make decisions that were not politically charged. You know, I, so I, I felt like I handled it because and honestly, as I look at you or any of them, everybody has the right to say what they said to me. 
Well, I mean, they, I don't. They, uh, all, they, they all had the right to ask for their set. They all had the right to say. And Rick Ingram was threatening to leave one night. If uh, Aziz is our, Aziz, Aziz, is that right? Yeah, Aziz and Zari. And Zari. Aziz is our, I'm sorry. I said That's all good. He's probably not listening. No, I know. But I, my point being is that he was, Rick was mad he was going to go. And I asked him if you would mind if Rick went first. And he was like, no, nah, that's okay. He did it one time. Next time he came in, I said, the same guy's supposed to go on. He goes, all right. He goes, I did that last night. I really do need to go on. And I told him, you can go on. <laughs> I would ask big level comedians if they could wait one more because of a comic a lot. But I would ask. I wouldn't tell. No way. I mean, you, you know, I, I I don't want to make this about you and me. Uh, no, get, you make it about you and me when you want to. Because I I told, I've, I've, I briefly talked to you on the phone earlier. You just have to understand. I just... It's like I talked to you. I wanted you to work on yourself as mentally from an inside perspective, thinking of yourself as a performer, not just a brilliant person with ideas and stuff like that. And then I just thought I left it alone to go into motion. As far as I, if I, if people want me to see him again, I'll just say this to you. If people want me to see them again, I always going to ask. And that, I was never against that. People are like, I want you to see me now. I want you to see what I'm doing. I'm great. Let's go. And, and you, it's not that you had to do that. Maybe you didn't feel like, you know, that was something that you wanted to do because I understand that too. But that's one way I get to see if some people are doing better if they're really wanting to be aggressive about it. I mean I was just confused at the process up there to be honest with you. I brought times. I brought it I brought it up to you because I knew that there was going to be a change for you. You become too much part of it all. You were the part of the psyche of the store. So you're not even not paid regular be you're beyond it. You're a person that's into the walls of it. And there and just I have met so many people in this year and Four months. See how long I know how long it's been. Year and four months that I haven't been there. I've met so many people that, you know, know of you and 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 heard you say things and quote you and have seen Don's band and all this stuff. And nobody thinks anything other than you're completely brilliant. Your mind works fast, and everyone's mind works fast to a point. But come on, man. All the, remember how many people were in the room where I'll think about now, how many people were in the room on some of those classic nights with Robert William Appervi up there is you, Ryan O'Neill, Jeff Dennis, me, and then maybe one or two other people. And that's it. So I was there. I heard you. I heard the funny things you said. You got the funniest remar- laughs at remarks you said in the late night ever. And that's the only reason that when I was, I used to pass people for different reasons, different timing, this and that, and the other thing. My thought with you is I wanted you to come into the light immediately, which means I didn't want you to get passed and then go work late night a long time because I felt like since probably what, 2009, 2008, when have you been around since? I mean, well, I started there in 2000 and uh, when I saw Brody Stevens make a comet cry at potluck i'm like i don't think this place is for me but you came back in About and you were there oh eight yeah i said you so you've been there seven years and you fit in with the psychological of it and then what you and don created even though with brody and don started out good because of the the, the way that Brody can be about certain things. Like sometimes I go away along with it. And sometimes he doesn't like the way Don's talking to him, that kind of thing. You filled in that thing. And the big BKO thing is just, but my dilemma with you was like, I want to be seen as a comic. I don't want to be seen as I know that like, uh, and once again, I don't, I want to get back into like the mainstream comedy talk, but you know, since I have you here, no, no, I, I'm just, my thing I'm trying to point out to you is it just hadn't happened yet. Cause I, I think people really feel that I hate you 
because well he never passed you he well that was the talk when i left it was come on let's just be honest about it my leaving the comedy store was it came such a negative thing it's that's the shame of it all and mitzi's still sends me they still send me pictures of her she still says my name we love each other i spent 10 years talking to that person absorbing her concept I understand the psychological of the comedy store in a way that not one other human being there does except for Argus Hamilton. And his view still has a little bit to do with what the, I mean, because it was really crazy back in his day. And she was 100%, so she was allowing it to be that way. It couldn't be that way now because of the society we're in and, and all this other stuff and structure and all these other things. But it's, there's, a, there's a beauty to it. And it's still there. I did my job. Even though people, whatever people have individual feelings in me, I did my job. I healed the energy inside the store. I used to tell people all the time. I got there that was negative. It was negative. It had a lot was of, a dark. It was dark and it was uh, negative. Age of stand-up comedy, the the late '90s, early 2000s. It was just very uh, negative. And then, and I don't know. I just, I didn't. Mitzi was the only one that saw what I was doing. I used to say, I'm a performer by nature and I have a certain energy. And when I put it out as a performer, you'll feel it. Instead of doing that, I put it down into the floor, into the building to try to build the energy. About 2010, year before she stopped coming in, Mitzi's sitting in the booth in the top of the, the main room. I come walking over to her from the front door, say, how are you? I kneel. And she looked at me and she goes, I wanted to tell you something. I go, what? She goes, it feels so good inside my place. Thank you for what you've done. And I just smiled at her. She recognized that my work wasn't just a specific job. I was working on the energy and the feeling. And how I did that was by removing the power from people who can make it negative. If, I, if you can't have people be negative and come in, and I'm sorry, I know that place still runs real now, but between the guys that are all there now and the way they like to be with people, you can't tell me that the energy is exactly the same. No way. I, I mean, kept everybody in check. It's different, uh, you know. It's it's different if you want if we want to be philosophical. It's the same if you want to just talk technically. Oh, the show starts at here, and you go on here, and there's people there. And, you know what I mean? For comedians, it's, it's fine. The problem that I not the problem I have, but what I'm sad for is the loss of the college system. It does not exist. Now, what it, do you mean exactly by the college system? You come in, you work, and you develop through through the non paid regulars and. And then you see, and then you you, can, you either can become a paid regular or something like that. Now it's just you get show you know, going back to just showcases, and you decide if someone wants to get past. There's not necessarily an evolution. I mean, it's not, and it's not going to affect anything now or ever. It's not going to affect anything financially at all. It's just about it being there. It was the uniqueness of it that it was the only comedy club, not just in like the West Coast. We're talking the world. The world that had a system where you could come in, maybe become an employee, maybe become a non-paid regular, maybe become part of something late night like you did with Don and Esther did too. And you guys were just part of another thing. You know what I mean? This kind of stuff, different ways of coming in and being seen and being talked to comedic development is conversations with people. How do I know what to say to people and how to get better at comedy? I'm a talented person myself, but I have my own ideas and I sat next to Mitzi, not once, not twice, not 10 times, hundreds, if not a thousand times. So I got to understand what it was she was looking for. My, f my favorite one about Mitzi passing someone, showing you how quick it is, is Dove Davidoff went up there. Steve Byrne wanted him in. 
And Dove brought him in when Mitzi was there and he put him up on stage and Dove just walked back and forth on the stage and he goes, what do you guys want to talk about? And she goes, oh my God, he's great. And I went, Mitzi hasn't even said anything yet. She goes, I already told you about that. I don't have to see him say anything to know what they can do. And I'll be damned if not four minutes later, he had everybody in the whole room laughing very hard. So she identified it before it even happened. And when you get back to the question about me and African-American performers, it was starting before I took over because of Mitzi. Mitzi is not against black people at all. Of course not. And no one ever going to call her a racist. She's a little Jewish woman from Wisconsin. She endured more racism than they'll even understand. That's why she's so incredible that she overcame everything. I mean, she was the editor of her school paper, a little Jewish girl in Wisconsin. How'd she do that? Because she was that good. That's why. And I can assure you out there uh, listening, uh, Jews in Wisconsin are not uh, plentiful. No. You know, she was very proud of things, Mitzi. Her father escaped Russia when he was 17. He ran for his life. He built a whole life out of here from nothing. That's a brave man. So she was proud of that stuff. But point being is she didn't pass in black comics for a while. She used to say certain things. She would say like, oh, God, they're all imitating each other, trying to get to their deal. You mean like say Eddie Murphy, they want to be the next Eddie Murphy? Yeah, or something. That's why. And the the people that she didn't pass are no names that we know. They really aren't. I didn't know. I didn't know. You know, these are just people. Guy made me laugh. She's like, no. But then to get an idea of what she was looking for, along comes Ian Edwards. And within a minute, she turns to me. She goes, now we're talking. He's amazing. So, yeah, but she goes, see, this is exactly the kind of black comic I've been looking for. He's himself. So she said about him. And is that what you looked for, for a comic to be him or herself? Just something that's relatable. It's hard to... It's, Mitzi's gift was she was able to see what people can become. I don't know if that's, oh, I can say I'm that, but I do have a, a way of going down a doorway. I sat with Mitzi watching TV with her from 2002 to 2011, but 2002 to 2006 or 2008, she tested me a lot. We'd be looking at somebody. She goes, well, hey, Comedy Central or you know, something. What do you think of this guy? So I'm not sure, Mitzi. What do you think? She goes, I didn't fucking ask you that. So I, I like him. Yeah, I do too. What do you think of this girl? I'm not sure, Mitzi. What do you think? I didn't fucking ask you that. What do you think? I don't know, Mitzi. I don't really like her, but she, maybe she's got something. She goes, well, I don't like her either. And that's the way it was going with her and I. Never disagreeing on anything we saw. But what would you do if, like, say you liked uh, Comic A and she didn't? What? Was that the end for Comic A, or could they... No, the whole idea is it's a, a, being a stand-up comic at the store is an exercise in tenacity. That's one of the reasons we'll get to it's people's question is, why did I end the formal showcase? Because I was there all the time. The formal showcase became something that was do or die. How are you supposed to go in front of Mitzi one time, and then she's going to decide whether you should be in there or not? Let's talk to Sam Tripoli. He said he went up in front of her like three, four times before she passed him. That's why when Sarah Silverman was like, oh, she didn't pass me. I'm like, well, Sarah, you should have kept coming and going up in front of her. She would have passed you. She just didn't always do it at first. Sometimes she did. So with Mitzi, she just felt you had to keep going. Great story on keeping going. 
is with Leslie Jones, who's very current right now. Leslie and I have had talks. I may never speak with her again. She's either too famous or I don't know how she feels about me. But I felt like we went through something with Mitzi together that, that we both learned something from. So Leslie gets passed by Mitzi, I think, in 2004. And then she actually kind of goes off for a while and is making it out there. And I think she, she even did a deaf comedy jam, which, ironically enough, Mitzi and I watched together. She didn't, Mitzi didn't like it. It was very dirty. This is maybe 2008 or something. I don't know, 2009, 2007. I can't remember. Right around there. And um, Leslie calls in. She's in town. She calls in for spots. I'm over at Mitzi's house. And I understand I'm still doing the lineups with her where I give her names. And she tells me whether to give them spots or not, how many. And then I'm learning by then how to place them. But I, she did control that. If to give them a spot. And how many? She controlled that till 2009. And then I kind of had to take it over. But she wanted me to because she still looked at my thing like a teacher. I did a lot of stuff. I gave it to her with the glasses and she looked over and she, sometimes she'd just go, this is really good, honey. Why don't you just move this one to here and that one to there? I'd be like, oh, that's even better. She goes, yeah, I know. <laughs> so she liked that I began to lay a grid for her to make her light changes to. But I honored them because I'm not, I was never in competition with her. I was just like, you're a genius, lady. This you, is female wisdom. You, you were know? her apprentice. Yes, she was my mentor. And then what I was is I have helped many people in my life psychologically figure things out. I'm better at helping other people with their lives than I am my own. It's, my mother was the same way. It's just the way I am. So I got, we got deep into Mitzi's psyche because she wanted to. Talking about her youth, talking about her teenage years, talking about her marriage to Sammy, talking about, you know... Um, magical things like a perfect example real short and she said to me she goes i said mitzi you used to go backstage with elvis she goes yes so he really liked you she goes he loved me that's wonderful she goes he knew that i understood what is it you understood mitzi she goes elvis was sad because he didn't get to say goodbye to his mother and he loved her just that one act of not being able to say goodbye to his mother stayed with him his whole life. Isn't that something? I was like, it is. So back to Mitzi. So she starts passing, you know, so we got Leslie Jones. So Leslie Jones calls in for spots. And Mitzi goes, Leslie Jones, I don't remember. Who was who that again? I went, Mitzi, ironically enough, we just saw her the other night on the Deaf Comedy Jam. She goes, was she the girl screaming all that stuff? I said, yeah. I said, and you told me to turn. He told me, turn that shit off. It's not funny. And she, we both laughed. And then she goes, no spots. And I went, Mitzi, Leslie's, she's doing well. She goes, no spots. So Leslie called after she didn't get a spot. What's going on, Tommy? Why didn't I get a spot? Mitzi said no. And Mitzi, Leslie's like, that's racist or, or that's bad. I was like, that's not. Listen, listen to me. With Mitzi, she thinks stand-up is an exercise in tenacity. Just keep calling in. Just keep calling in and, and show her that you're not going to stop. So Leslie called in for about two more weeks. And then Mitzi, almost like showing you that this is like elevated wisdom. It's like I felt like I was witnessing something. She goes, I said, Leslie Jones. She goes, so she's not going to go away, huh? And I went, no. She goes, good. She's got my message. She's not just going to be one way in my place. Okay. Well, I want you to schedule her, but I want you to give her a mantra. Do you know what that is? And 
I look at as a phrase that you repeat to yourself, you know. And she says, I want you to tell Leslie that every time before she goes on stage, she's to say to herself, I'm for everyone. I'm for everyone. I'm for everyone. The change that's needed in her will come from within side and she will be for everyone, not just a black comic talking to black audiences. I said, okay. And she goes, and when you schedule her, you put her in the 1030 original room show, which people don't know, 1030 to two, you put her one third in, make her the first female comic, first black comic. Isolate her so she can show them her power. And that's the thing, too, is I realized that even though Mitzi had been messing with her, she said that she was powerful. Like she had known that all along, you know? And so we scheduled Leslie that way. And Leslie didn't change anything about herself. She didn't change how she talks or anything. But she is loved by everyone. Because Mitzi gave her a mantra to remind her inside her own mind that her comedy was for everyone. I used to hear when Leslie went down to La Jolla, the little white rich women down there would be like, oh, they would be like worshiping her. Oh, God, I wish I could talk to my husband the way you talk. You know what I mean? Right. So she is where she is now, but she got a little piece of Mitzi Shore wisdom during her years on the OR stage, perfecting her craft. And that's what I mean with, with, with Mitzi, you know? And then, you know, you talked about the racist thing. So she didn't pass many black comics. So that kind of word was going around before I even became a talent coordinator that you couldn't get into the, if you were a black comic, you weren't being brought into the store. And, uh, she had to go through a lot of things with Eddie. Eddie Griffin, Mitzi loves, but Eddie was being very hoggish with his stage time. And uh, for you non-comedy uh, connoisseurs, that basically means he would run the light. He would, uh, which running the light in the world, yeah, but not still- even running the light. Running the light would be doing five or ten extra minutes. Eddie was getting on stage and doing hours. He was having no regard for all the other comics that were on the lineup. And then you get the shit. Well, the other they're all they're all disappointed, and then what it did too is the audiences really didn't want to hear two hours of Eddie because he he was using. It's not that he's not brilliant, and he is. He's a great performer, and he's brilliant. But she said that he was using the stage for therapy, and once they start using the stage for therapy, she says, then the the fun of the set is over. They can do it a little bit. Now, honestly, when Dave Chappelle was working out a couple of years ago, he's brilliant, but he came in and started using the stage for therapy. Now he did it late at night, two thirty in the morning, so it didn't matter. But he wasn't. He was just opening his mind, letting it come out. I think it's good for them in a way. But in the middle of a show, when Earl, you got a, your first eleven o'clock spot, and you're getting bumped for two hours just so Eddie Griffin can walk back and forth, smoke cigarettes, and just talk, it's annoying. So I'm saying Mitzi had to finally. She came in and saw him and sat down at the bottom of the belly room stairs, uh, which she said ironically later was where she and Richard Pryor had many of their talks. The bottom of the belly room stairs, she sat down with Eddie and she goes, you're going to have to stop coming in for a while, Eddie. Because Mitzi, I do She goes, I have asked you repeatedly to not do this much time and you're not listening to me. You're interfering with the growth of other comics. She goes, you're, that's what my place is about. It's not just about a show. It's about growth. So when she banned Eddie Griffin for a while, that was the first thing that changed our dynamic, girl. 
all of a sudden John Caparula and Sebastian and, you know, and Al Magical and, and Ian Edwards and Brett Ernst, Ahmed Ahmed, Maz Jabrani, they got to be in their sets right. in the shows. And that started changing the vibe right there. It was great. I really felt I was selling a worthy product. And that's Mitzi's last great class, the people I've just mentioned. Ren as Azizi well, as well. Was Ren, he in that Ren class? Ren Azizi is, uh, is not the he's, – he's our last great find, yeah, but he's still more a junior. Senior, no, he's senior class. Rick Ingram was the prodigy of the senior class there now because he just went up to do his employee set, and I was sitting next to Mitzi, and she goes, oh, my God, he's got it. And I went, it, Mitzi? She goes, it, stupid, it. <laughs> And and uh, you know she just thought Rick was naturally talented. Oh, he's great. Well, but she but she he was an example she showed me of taking someone who's not really ready and throwing him in the middle of the re- of the better people to lift him up. It's like some people you make sure they. That's why I was trying to tell you when it, and even reference to you. People get passed at different times for different reasons. You just have to read what it is. Well, I mean, I'll say this it, it's selfishly for the next minute. You know, the frustrating thing with that was. I used to do a lot of shows with people you had recently passed, and uh, I'd be like, "I'll go, I'll go on first, just to get the room going." And, and they were like, "No, no, you go on last." And uh, I'm not that hard to follow, <laughs> uh, especially back then. I mean, my energy's low, and uh, and that was frustrating to see guys basically say, "Hey, we can't follow you." And it was like, next week I'd see them getting spots, and I'm. Begging for a potluck spot. Of course. That's very aggravating. I can understand that. I had that emotion projected to me many times by people. And I feel really, I feel bad about how you feel, but it also has a lot to do with the, 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 all the, the, so many people that you have trying to get spots for. Different people have been brought in for different reasons. You know? Oh, yeah. I'm not trying to make you feel bad either. You no, know? I, know. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's what you're trying to do. I mean, and I, just, I, I have a lot of people that have unanswered questions about themselves and it, about, with me, and not that I matter. You mean, are you talking like, say, I'll just throw out a name? You give me your reaction to them of guys either uh, that should be further along or, or whatever. Dana Shin O'Neill. Well, those guys, they didn't. Here's here's the thing with those guys. Um, they contributed a lot to the store, too, in a dark time. They worked it and really helped it and did every job they did better than they should during the Dean time, you know? Jeff Danis is a very fast mind. I'll have to say he's there with you and Rick Ingram, but there's he's, he's different in a way. I don't know how to explain it. Ryan O'Neill is very funny and very evil, which I always liked. Is that why you had them host Pollock a lot, just to put the younger comics through a... Uh... I, I, I went through a decision, and I left them isolated. They actually hosted Potluck for years while I was gone. We went into a phase with Mitzi where she was wanting me over on Sunday, Monday night. I mean, Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I had to stay there until she went to bed. She hated her home care people that were on just Sunday and Monday. She didn't want them to put her to bed. She wanted me to. And the woman, because she'd been nocturnal her whole life, would never go to bed. I never... I never went through such a thing as waiting for someone to want to go to sleep. So I was literally gone from potluck for maybe two years uh, till almost 10 or 11 at night. So Danish and O'Neill ran their own thing. And I put them in there with trust because they're brilliant minds and they were funny. I just thought that they were perfect for working the whole scene. 
The only thing I did discover of the two of them, once I did finally, Mitzi started going to sleep earlier and they changed a few things with home care. So I started coming in and watching them is their crowd work that they did got so far into themselves and what they were doing that they were not building a show. And when I commented to both of them about maybe working on building a show more, they were looking at me just, and I can understand, they were looking at me like, fuck you, Tommy, doing what you say, you're an idiot. You know, I'm doing what I want. And I was like, yeah, they still, almost everybody there still did not have as long a background in performance as I have as far as knowing that you have to get a crowd together a little bit. So I was just trying to encourage them to do some crowd work, but also bring some people up once in a while. Maybe say a joke. Just don't do the same thing. And very, very critical of every single person that went on. Now, I understand you got to be honest with people, but if you just totally destroy everybody before they even get a chance to go on and do their set or afterwards, it becomes a negative energy, you know, and, and, uh, uh, I don't know. So I, when I came back and I saw the way they were hosting, that's why I kind of brought that to an end. And then with Jeff Danis, I wanted him to open the shows, but he would only do crowd work. And Mitzi already told me that they can only do some, but they have to weave it into material. She said that opening is a job. It's a right. job. And he wouldn't do it. Well, it but, is tough. I mean... Uh... But he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. I understand he, he feels he's smarter than me and probably is. But I, I just... You have to do the job a little bit, too. And he didn't want to do that. And then Ryan O'Neill, I don't know. Uh, you know, he, he, I was giving him some late night spots when I was there coming back around. But I don't know. Earl, it's hard. If I got to choose between certain names and other names and, and you think about who's going to do what job, there's other people that are either were more proven or were going to do something else with it. And that's what Adam goes through every Monday now, <laughs> up in the, up wherever he works in the lineups, because knowing someone's going to get mad if he doesn't, you know, it's a game of slots. The only thing about Adam is he's more like a, a, an industry type person with his smartphone and his texts and his, and his uh, more like an agent. You know what I mean? I was an artist doing it. I, Mitzi said to me once, she goes, you know what the beauty of you and I is? She goes, neither one of us ever knew we were going to end up doing this. And I said, no. She goes, I didn't know I was going to end up doing this when I was just raising my kids. Because I knew I was going to be helping Sammy, but I didn't know I was going to be running a comedy club. She goes, and with you? She goes, that's why it's so perfect with you. She goes, you're a talented person, but you never knew you were going to be in charge of the talent at a comedy store club, did you? I said, never in a million years would I have guessed it. She goes, that's why it works. She goes, a lot of times people that want to do this might come at it and do it for the wrong reasons. And that's why, in a way, Adam's all right, because I think he kind of got thrown on him. I've heard the stories. I mean, me, I don't know. Me, 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 me leaving was premeditated. They asked one kid to be the talent coordinator three, four weeks before I even left. All right. So point being is that Adam, I think it kind of got thrown on him. And that's good in a way, because even though he managed comedy clubs and he's working with, uh, you know, um, Norm MacDonald. Norm MacDonald and, and all that stuff. I don't think he thought he was going to be writing the lineups for the, for the comedy store, which I think ends up making it they have that same type of an energy. You know? Well, I mean, it is a thankless job. I mean, it, no Barry matter Cat who you take care of. Yeah, Barry Katz told me after I left, he goes, look, he goes, uh, he met with me. He was kind enough to. And he was like, look, pal, he goes, I, I saw what you did. He goes, the place was in a dark place and you brought it to the light. Because many of us know that you literally healed the energy in there. He goes, but being the talent booker at a comedy club is a thankless job. He goes, for all the praise you think that you might have received, he goes, you've got just as much negative. 
He goes, and let me just say this to you. He goes, you may feel valuable at your job. He goes, but if you were so valuable, why isn't your phone ringing? And I was like, because you worked in a controversial way, pal. You did. He goes, so don't be expecting anybody to go offer you anything because they won't. And that's the only thing I can say is that for someone who could, be, I, a person like me could benefit Comedy Central. I could benefit HBO as a scout working in their development departments, but they probably won't talk to me because I had so much negativity. I didn't get to leave being the talent, talent coordinator at the comedy store to go to my next job. See what I mean? I got assassinated. And that's the thing that I am the most bothered by is, is that I became so much what I was doing there. I literally had a personality crisis. I didn't know who I was if I wasn't doing what I was doing. And I do now. I remember. But it was, it was emotionally destructive to me. And the queen knows it. I only talked to her a couple times. And one of the times she talked to me, she goes, I worry about you. I said, I'm okay, Mitzi. And she goes, no. I mean, so that means a lot to me that she knows that what I put into there was my emotion in my heart and my feeling. And I wanted to create an artist colony that was thriving again. And the word was everywhere. It's just now what happened, which it does sometimes is you are a, a, a person and you pass the football and then you got competent young people with social media like Brenton Biddlecombe. You got organized managers like Eric uh, Anderson. And then you've got a, a industry savvy person like Adam Egot that are now taking what I put together and moving it way forward. I mean, I will say this, and not that I'm putting my Dr. Phil hat on, but I feel some comics think that you weren't necessarily uh, straightforward with them. Like, I'll see Adam, you know, a comic will come up to him and say, hey, why didn't I get spots or why aren't I getting spots? And Adam will tell him, hey, you know, you're just not for me. And although it certainly sucks to hear that, I think they walk away with not negative feelings towards Adam because at least he's being straight up with them. Oh, man. I've been straight up with people, and they all know who they are. I will try to be nice, and I'll say I ain't feeling it and stuff, but if you get pin me in the corner and you're asking me why you're not getting something, I will tell people why. And I have had – I we'll put it this way, Earl. I've been thrown up against walls. I've been punched. Well, I never got that upset. Yeah, but I, that's what's happened to me because they pinched me into telling them the truth about where things were at, just where it's at at that moment. I, Adam doesn't have a broad enough view to pick comics who are going to develop into stars. He knows how to now. I mean, I laid a grid. He can follow my grid. Oh, oh he added back in Joe Rogan and Al Magical. Oh, okay. Like we all can't figure out how to do that. All right. I'm just saying, but I follow, I have a grid. There are certain things I did from Mitzi. Bobby Lee at 945. Mitzi, why is Bobby Lee go at 945? Because he wakes up the show. Perfect way to say it. You know what I mean? So I played a grid and anyone can follow it. I mean, I got even asked before I left, which is I knew, you know, Johnny Zapp of all people <laughs> is the one who told me, he goes, I've heard negative talk about you before. He goes, but it's at a new peak now. He goes, I just want you to know they're coming for you. I said, you think so? He goes, yeah. How long have you been here now, Tommy? I said, almost 13 years. He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, I will bet you in a year from now, I will not see you here. 
I said, I don't know, Johnny. Mitzi wants me to be in this position. He goes, Mitzi's not saying anything to anyone anymore, is she? So Johnny said this to me eight months before I left. Okay, so I understand what's going on. But the main thing I'm trying to say about what I worry about now is that Mitzi had all this wisdom for comedians that you give at certain points. Comedic development, as she pointed out to me, is like this. She says, first thing to know if you're going to develop comics is don't tell them what to say and don't tell them what to do. She goes, but... She goes, if you feel something and, and, uh, and words come into your mind while they're performing, she goes, go tell them that immediately. She goes, it might be useful to them. She goes, and you'll find if you do it right, sometimes the comedian will come back to you and thank you for what you've said. You won't even remember what you said. She goes, it's that pure. So I would wait till the right moment when I saw something to talk to people, not like way after. You have to talk to him at the moment, like the second the set's done or something. Even this little show I oversee on Sunday with Laura, if I see him leaving, I run out right after him because I got to tell him right then what came into my head. I'm not going to remember a few minutes later and it's not going to have the same impact. So what Mitzi did with comics is when they got done, they would walk by her and she would, you know what I mean? Right. Like 30 seconds. Um, now you mentioned... Uh I guess people would say the main difference between, say, you and Adam in terms of the lineups are there's more, uh, I don't know if celebrity is the right word, but people like a Rob Schneider, a Joe Rogan. Uh, Joe Rogan and Al Magical just timed their comeback perfectly as I left. Is Joe Ro- I was already talking with Tony Hinchcliffe that Joe needed to be back. There was his home. I had asked several times over the years if he could come back, and I was told no by the family. Because okay. oh, you were told. Uh, oh, I, this I did not have anything to do with Joe Rogan not being there. I didn't have anything to do with that at all. Because I think a lot of people assume that because no. you maybe weren't the best of friends with him, or no, whatever. that's not it at all. I got along real well with Joe in the beginning. I when I first became the talent coordinator, we started talking to each other in 2006. I remember one time I even called him and thanked him for putting in his spots and being there because he literally was financially helping save the place just by him being there. He was. You know, I counted one time with a clicker how many extra people came in for Joe Rogan on a typical Friday and Saturday, and it was 30 to 40 extra people. That may not sound like a lot to people that don't understand the OR, but that's the difference between 120 and 150. That's the difference between 80 and 120. You know what I mean? It's like that's that's the, that's the whole difference. 40, 50 extra Right. I mean, the, the, other, the other people that were there were liking that he was going to be there, but I'm talking about specific people that you go, who are you here tonight? Oh, we're here because of Joe Rogan. So I love Joe. It's just the Joe and Carlos fight thing. It led into a feeling that was going on with, um, within the, the, the siblings that Joe was taking advantage of the place. He was smoking where he wanted to. He was taking pictures and posting stuff online. And I, didn't, I, don't, I think it's great. My perspective was he's only advertising the place, okay? But there was a feeling there like, no, he shouldn't be doing that. And so when... He, Carlos and Joe had their fight on stage, and which no one should have ever seen anyway. I mean, this is the thing with Red Band, and I know he doesn't always think good things about me, but hey, he shouldn't have snuck in and taped that. I ran around with Dean and everyone else working there at the time to get everyone to stop filming because the Michael Richards thing had just happened a year, less than a year earlier. We didn't want that. So we were talking, and we go turn off all the phones, and who of all people, Red Band, goes and tapes the thing. And then when Joe put it on and edited it and did some stuff to it, that was viewed as malicious. So problem being, Joe called Mitzi 
And Carlos called Mitzi and Mitzi goes, it's okay. Carlos is going to work in the main room and Joe's going to work in the OR. So since these people heard this from her voice, it was then the siblings that get into the thing about now he needs to take a little break. You call him and tell him, Tommy, I'm the talent coordinator. So I have to call Joe, and even though I'm being friendly with him, and he said, I already talked to Mitzi. Everything's cool. I said, I know, but they're saying they want you to take a break, just a small break. And he said to me, he goes, that's ridiculous, because if you make me do that, he goes, I'm going to go public with this. And he did. And he got on his website, and he said some stuff. And you know, my main thing that I got turned off by is he posted our phone number, and told him to call us and call us names and all this stuff. So me and the other phone guys, for months, we went through hell. You know what I mean? People calling up, this place is fucked and all this stuff. You know, well, you do that to Joe Rogan. It's like, and I'm thinking, so it wasn't me. It wasn't me. But that was the only thing that began to turn me off. It's, it's, It's like, see, it's not a secret to me. I know Joe's a great guy and he's talented. I read an article in Rolling Stone. They say he's probably the greatest UFC announcer in history. They're saying that about him. But they're saying that about him. That's great stuff. But I'll also know, too, that I've seen him destroy a human being in the original room for heckling a little bit. I mean, but destroy to mutilate down to like they shouldn't even have the right to be alive. And then buy the, the club a round of drinks to balance. So point being is that there can be an ugliness there. Not that it is, but it can be. And that's the thing I found was the turnoff, was that as much as he says he loves the comedy store, he turned an ugliness on us that came off on us for a long time. It hurt the business. We watched the sales plummet. But I will say this. Once Joe left, even though I'm glad he's back there now, that's another thing that opened up the OR for John Caparula, for Sebastian, for Bill Burr, for Dove Davidoff. For Leslie Jones, for Ian Edwards, for Brett Ernst. All of a sudden, they were the show, and they really were just 15-minute sets. So from the growth perspective, it opened it up. It's just after those people were grown and they're back on the road, I just thought it was too long. Mitzi loved Joe Rogan. The only thing I will say about her, though, is the last set she saw his, maybe late 2006, early 2007, she said she did not care for she goes, I, she, I drove her home. She goes, God, I didn't like that at all. And how do you balance that when she says that about one of the biggest comics? Uh, I listen world. to her and I think it's her opinion. And I realize I'm still going to put him in the same spots the next week because he's a star. Joe Rogan's a rock star. When I heard he went, but the only thing I, I, I don't like is that I got put in a position where it made it look like when I exit, that's the reason these people come back. And they can say that's why, but it just, it played out that way. I heard that Joe and Paulie sat in a booth and had a great conversation. You know, well, he was part of the sibling group that didn't want him in there either for a while either. So what, you, you blame me for a decision you guys are making? No, okay. But it doesn't matter. I wanted it to end, and it did. And, and now Magical, you know, that should have never been like that. It should have never been like that. I mean, you know? why was it like that, though? Uh, Chris D'Elia. He didn't. He did not like the preference treatment I was giving him, and he he was not he was not on board with the way. Remember, I told you three, four spots a week. Okay, he wasn't on board with that. He didn't understand that. He's different. But uh, you're talking. Al was not happy with Chris's. He wasn't happy. I was treating him. 
It was Polly. You understand? I love Polly. I love Polly. I respect him. He has a lot of Mitzi's instinct, and he's the one that told me one time when we were slow on avails. He goes, dude. He goes, if we're if you're light on your avails, he goes, give someone like that Crystalia guy another set in the OR. Give him two spots. And I went, you think so, Polly? Would that be okay? Because the guy's a monster. And Polly was just validating what I thought I was seeing. So Al came in and saw that we did that one night, and he didn't like it. He goes, well, you give me spots in both rooms. I said I would, and then by then he was mad. And I tried. I apologized. Oh, that wasn't, that wasn't the only reason. The other biggest reason was Jason Sudeikis uh, came in to work out. He wanted to go on the, uh, to work out. I set up a set from the belly room, and he did the set in the belly room. He wanted to go on the OR, but Chris D'Elia was next, and Chris had to go. But I would work in the door. I was always great information for me there at the door. I knew all these people were coming in to see Chris because he was building. He was building a buzz. So I, I asked if uh, the management, if we could just let Chris go first because Chris says, I'm going to have to leave. Because Jason's not a proven stand-up. He's a performer and everything, but he's not a stand-up. It's different. Because he was doing something for the MTV Awards. Yeah, he was. And so, Jay, so Jason, they decided to leave. And Al called me and he told me, because you made me look like a jerk, which maybe I did. I didn't mean to. Because I told him they could work. I said, but dude, I got him the belly room spot. He goes, yeah, but you bumped him for Chris D'Elia. And he's, Jason is a bigger star than Chris. Al's totally validated. Don't get me wrong. He's validated. But as Mitzi pointed out, the position comes with the position. She goes, you make calls. And not everyone always likes them. Hey, I made a call. And for that night, for the room, they got their Crystalia and the girls cheered and everyone had a great time. If they hadn't, it would have been like, oh, Jason Sudeikis went on, but you didn't get any Crystalia. I knew that that wouldn't make them happy. Well, I'm sure people gave you a lot of shit for Caparillo getting basically a half hour spot whenever he had, I mean. Mitzi told me I could do that. I asked about it. But what do you say to the comic A who says, why is he getting a half-hour spot? And I'm not getting a spot tonight. Because it's just the, it's the way I felt. I, Mitzi only said the same thing about everybody. About the same one thing about every person. John, her description of John Caparula is, he's the best. And, you know, uh, I don't know. John just it was clever. I. I just felt like there was something going on with him. And that was only if it worked. You know, nobody else was really, nobody else really even asked for that. He just wanted to see if he could have it sometimes when he came in. If it was really overloaded, we didn't do it every time. That's what people may not remember. I would call John. I go, it's too many. He goes, it's cool. Do you know what I mean? I, I would talk to him. But I just nurtured him. Mitzi said this to me about John, because John can be controversial sometimes with some people, you know? I've heard people say some things, and I don't agree. She said to me when it came to John, she says, he's a different type of creature, so treat him as such. It was John that put his foot down about uh, Carlos Mencia popping into the main room and going on before everyone and doing a half an hour. And he would refuse, and he left. And when I went over to Mitzi's house and told her that Cap left, I mean, Carlos did a half an hour, she just like you, she turned and she goes, well, he had every right to do that. Carlos should not be doing that. Who's putting him on that early? So well, Danny, the sound guy, she goes, Danny's not in charge of the show. You are. Oh, so that's, that doesn't work like that, Mitzi. Danny's been there a lot longer than me. I write the lineup out with you, but when the show comes, he runs it. She goes, no, he is not, Carlos is not to get in there. So that's when we started saying that Carlos couldn't bump in because John Caparula, people can say what they want about him, but him putting his foot down was what stopped it. So he actually helped everyone else a little bit. 
because that's why uh you know in regards to mencia i think a lot of people really became rogan fans because it was seen as rogan sticking up for all us comics who well rogan is is a is a he's the real thing you know he's authentic well, he's also a, like a fourth degree black belt. So. Yeah, but I mean, he's authentic as a as a comic, as a free flowing person. There's not a day in his life, and I don't know him, but I don't think there's a day in his life that he's not doing a podcast, speaking on a microphone, talking. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's a person spreading the his word the way he sees things. Carlos is more of a contrived performer. Well, that's a guy who's truly hated in the world of well comedy. he's hated the same because he made mistakes you got to be honest about stuff and he shouldn't have taken on joe rogan he really made a mistake there because don't forget that fight joe didn't start the fight between carlos and joe carlos did joe rogan goes this next guy writes for carlos Menstelia, kirk fox kirk went on stage and because carlos had kirk working for a show what was his thinking what was his thinking thought he owned him right he just went up and pulled the mic right out of Kirk's hand and started calling Joe all these names. He called, just like we say, is this and that? Why would anybody call out Joe Rogan? What, are they stupid? I certainly would not. I would never do that. I you like know? my body parts working. No, that's a dumb... Yeah, but it's not that. It's, he'll destroy you with words. You don't have to lift his fist. He's smart. He can dest- I've seen him destroy people. I don't want to be standing across from him because he would destroy me. You know, he'd just mutilate me if he wanted to. So I don't want to go through that, but I respect him for it. So that whole fight thing just got to be, you know, a waste of time. It's been a waste in a way that Joe's been gone all the years he has, but it's always nice when someone returns. Oh, it's been great to have him back. And then Joey Diaz came back, Mm -hmm. uh, almost like they were a a tag team of sorts coming back at the same time. And, uh, you know, it's it's definitely a... uh, Joe Diaz is funny. He's good. But in the modern sense of what's going on, if I got to choose between putting Gerard Carmichael or Brent Morin on or Joey Diaz, I'm going to go with those first two guys. That's the truth because they're they're what's now, they're what's happening. Now, in regards to people you would put up, is there are there comics you wish you would have passed? Well, yeah, I, I wish I got to finish what I was doing. Right. I had four people that were floating on my radar before I left, unless I saw something that blew me away. Now, the, one of the last people I passed, though, which I did quickly, was Ron Funches. Who's great. Yeah, but I mean, I just he came in from San Francisco. This is before he was on the show. And I just I saw him do a few minutes on a, on a Sunday, and I said, you come back here next week and do eight minutes. And then he came back to eight minutes. He walked up to the front cover booth, and I said, all right, Ron, I think we're going to have to make you a paid regular. And he goes, oh, my God, Tommy, you made my heart flutter. <laughs> So we brought him in right away. And then even though Undateable's been off a few seasons, don't forget, it's the store. I put all those guys back to back and then even did an eight-minute okay for Rick Glassman to slide him in there. I did, I did that first. I always wanted us to do things first. That's what I always felt was important for us, you know? So is to make sure that we showcase something there first. So I don't know. But don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be negative on Joe Diaz. He's great. Oh no! I've, I've seen him have the whole crowd suspended in his hand, and he can do anything. He can handle anything. He talks honestly. He's a, he is a living cartoon, you know. So I'm glad those guys are back in there. I miss being a part of it, Earl, but I'm also was tired too. Well, I can imagine if you do it as long as you did it. I mean, there for 13 years, talent coordinator for what eight to nine? Nine, yeah. Uh, 
I mean, I see what Adam goes through and it's been a year and it's, it's tough. You got people trying to bribe their way in people like me who, who up there a while think, well, I'm owed this guy passed. I want to be passed or girl. Uh, hey, you were just ready though. You Rick Glassman, Jeremiah Watkins, and then maybe Iko Tanaka. They were the four that I was kind of like watching a little bit. And Jeremiah is showcasing tomorrow night. Is he? Oh, no, um, wait a minute. Candace Thompson, I knew was ready. So when she got passed, that didn't surprise me. Yeah. We were, uh, I guess the first two pass in the new, uh, era i guess you'd say and uh, she's awesome um but you know uh, tommy i could talk to you for the next four hours yeah how long have we already been on uh an hour and a half oh wow uh i want you back for more uh, there's always a part b if you want to talk about this stuff i'd be glad to and then, oh i would love to and then maybe even if you want to get some specific questions from people and i'll and i'll answer them i mean to, if you want to do a little of that right now before th- we stop sure sure i mean they might be crazy though i, I, well, some of these, I don't care uh i really i i don't plan my podcasts as you could probably tell um well you let me talk on tangents too i'm sorry no but that's like i said this is the interview i think since you left the comedy store that people wanted to hear because you in my 15 years of doing comedy and i'm just speaking from my mind there's never been a person guy or girl comic or person of you know behind the mic who issues such emotion you either love you or hate i've been that way my whole life i mean you're a lot like my favorite rock group kiss you either love kiss or you hate them. This is what this is what Peter Chen said once. I, I came back from Mitzi's house and he was trying to get on and they wouldn't put him on. I walked into the room and went to the booth and Peter comes around and he goes, Oh my God, you changed the whole energy in the room. <laughs> oh, you the new Mitzi. You Mitzi now. And Louis Anderson would come in all the time and go, This is Tommy, he's Mitzi. And what that means is that just means art an artist working in there. Right. That's my only thing. I'm against nothing against the people we've talked about, Adam and Eric. But they are not artists. Because you're music. You know, and I always wanted to tell you when I hear you playing your songs, uh, I was like, wow, I really like his voice. But I could never tell you because I thought he's going to think I'm kissing his ass, uh, which so, I know people did to you. Uh, well, I was a music theater major in college. I went on scholarship. And then I sang in lots of rock bands. My high school band, Stonehenge, played everywhere. We played uh, Penn State. We played University of Delaware. We played all the high school dances. And then I was in a band in college called The Desirables, which is from the early 80s. You know, ha, ha, ha. But we played a lot of stuff. We even opened for Hall & Oates. And I did a few things like that. Um, I just, I drank and partied and all this stuff in my nightclub years. And I got pancreatitis when I was 28. And I was in the hospital for three months. And they took out half my pancreas. And when I got out, I was okay. But when you get your stomach muscles cut, right, you can't sing the same way you could. So it wasn't until I actually came to the comedy store and brought my guitar in during the days and did a few sit-ups to get my stomach muscles together that I really started finding my voice again. And that's part of it. And then the theater part, dude. Theater, since I was, five, since I was 10, lead in every play, best high school actor in the state of Delaware. I went, I'm from Wilmington, Delaware. I'm from a... Uh, Wilmington, Delaware. It's where, you know, it's, it's actually one of the richest cities in the country. Joe Biden's from there. I went to a very exclusive prep school called Tower Hill where Mehmet Oz went. Dr. Oz. He's two grades above me. Okay. He played football with my older brother. I played on the same team with him too. So I came from um, privilege. 
and refinement. I went to debutante balls. I did all that stuff, which was part of the irony of when I came and worked at the comedy store in a comedy thing. Mitzi caught on real quick. She would say to me, she goes, where are you from? You know, it's like she was like the way I talked and the way I put certain words together. You know, she was always said that she could sum anybody up in two words after she met them. And I told you the story about going to her house the first time. I went back to my phone shift and Marcus Molina, who was the, her assistant, he came walking down the hallway, goes, Mitzi had two words for you when, when uh, you left. And I said, what's that? She goes, she goes, he's very smart. So it doesn't matter whether anyone thinks it or not. She did. And that was part of our thing going together. It's a deep thing. But the thing of the store, when anybody thinks they're having trouble with it, and they come see me sometimes in these, these little Sunday show I pop my head out at, and the thing I always remind them is, the store isn't supposed to be about who's in charge there. It's supposed to be about you and the building. Mitzi said she gave birth to the store, and it belongs to the comedians now. So when you walk in, Earl, and I say this to anyone, you should be walking in going, hi, building. And building goes, hey, Earl. And you go, I love you, Billy. Billy goes, I love you too, Earl. That's who you have your relationship with, the OR stage. She put such thought into the way that stage is. She explained it to me. She extended one side of the room a little bit so your eyes would balance when you were on stage so you would feel centered. You know? All that stuff. Why it's lit the way it is. Oh, I love it. And it's the toughest room in the country. And she says it's, it's deadened in air, but she likes no lights in there because she says then you guys don't see people's eyeballs as much. And she says, and then you don't get distracted by that, and you can go into your zone. She had a lot of thoughts on that stuff, but it's all thought out. That's the thing that Peter and Polly and Scotty and Sandy, or four children, know, is that when you walk around the comedy store with the pictures and the neons, every single little thing she picked, it's her artistic expression. It's beautiful. Well, it's the, I mean, I love the improv. I love the Laugh Factory, the Ice House, but uh, it's just the store is like. Sarah Silverman was telling me once, oh, they ought to modernize it in here and stuff like that. And I was like, I didn't agree with her. Polly sees it right. He's like, no, he says it's like a museum. He says it's like a, a slice of history. Uh, and then, you know, the neons in the main room thing. Iconic comedic people. That's why she put them there. Charlie Chaplin, W.C. Fields. You go into the main room, the Marx Brothers. You know, Laurel and Hardy, these are the forefathers that grounded the footwork for where the performers stand now. That's the, that's the deep-seated history, but that's the stuff that I would always say that I think is missed there now. When young people get talking to me, one girl that I brought into the non-paid regular system before I left, I saw her perform. I won't say her name because I don't want to put her on that's the spot. That's all good. But I just, she said to me afterwards, she goes, it's such a shame you're not there anymore telling people these things, these things I learned. So that's, you know, that's the reason that I, one of the things I've been really toying on and being, being pushed to do is writing a book and not a book about the, the history of the comedy store. Someone else can do that or a biography of Mitzi's whole life. Someone else could do that too. My thought of my title is Mondays with Mitzi, an insider's guide to the craft of stand-up comedy. And it's about just Mitzi's stuff and her perspectives. I had a publisher look at it. They made sure that I, I have to define the first three the characters, which is Mitzi, myself, and the store. And then the first chapter's long and the last chapter's long, but the in-between ones are literally a guide. The big three, talent, work ethic, and desire. You know, you be, for, uh, be ready is one of the chapters. Where are you from? 
which is one of the Mitzi's doorway in, which uh, people that have known her, if she liked you, that's her first question. Where are you from? You know? So that's the stuff that I feel like I carry a little bit of a flame about. Right. That I don't know what to do with, which is why I haven't left Los Angeles. Why I'm still not sure if what I learned from Mitzi and what I went through is supposed to just go hang in a closet somewhere. I don't think it should. If, if it does, then I feel it will be lost. Because even though I told you she has four wonderful children that all do well in their careers, they, she didn't speak to them about her perspectives on comedic development. Now, Polly could do be the talent coordinator and oversee the talent the best of all there. But he is already a celebrity. His job will always need to be himself, which it should be. Right. That's why he couldn't be expected to do something that he could do. So let's make sure that we know that, that a master artist in there overseeing and picking comics to perform in there. Polly is the ideal. And I think that Mitzi in her mind hoped it would be him, but he can't devote that much time to all that, you know, but he definitely can have, you know, with Adam and, and stuff, he can have people answer to him. Right. You know, like, in other words, give him information. It's not that I didn't give him information, but. Adam, I Adam, I think is in talent wise in a more subservient position to them than I was. It's not that they couldn't ask me anything, but they didn't ask me anything. I just kind of went along with my feelings. All right, you know. Well, uh, I'm sorry, but I know you probably need to end this. I'm no, no, no. Listen, I could go the next three hours, but I want people to go. I want to hear round two with these guys. Okay. Do, you, do I, let's. Do, even though we did, you want to ask us a couple questions? I did, well, before we go? I, I do. I want to. This is a game I play. I'm going to mention names. You give me a one word response. I'll try. Well, I mean, how about this? Under five words. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because, you know, I recently uh, did a show with this guy, and uh, I thought, well, this guy used to be a huge comic, and now he's kind of fluttering about Barry Diamond. They're random names. Very talented, but very dated. Okay. Perfect. Justin Martindale. Innovative. Um, innovative happening. Uh, t- talented. He's good. Dean Delray. Dean carries his own flag. And being a comedian, he gets to let out the wickedness that's always been hiding there. Tony Hinchcliffe. Tony's brilliant. He's coming into his own. And he's funny and has great work ethic. Don Barris. Don's a, a genius. He is, as I described with Mitzi, a master of late-night tomfoolery. Just a side note with Don. Remember, Earl, Don didn't get the kind of spots that I put him into that motion, and I'm sure he's told you that. He was maybe just get some opening ones or signing up late. I created, because of what I saw, what I felt with him, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday consistency of it. And Mitzi debated it with me a little bit because she felt like she knew Don better than me. And I told her that he was ready, that he'd been getting ready his whole life to, to, to rule that part of the night, that he made it fun. He didn't make it sad. He didn't make it negative. The only thing she asked of me with him is that him not do 
every night that Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and you know this too, cause you did the band with him. He was taking that over too. And she didn't, she didn't like right. that. She wanted the, she said he can't single handedly destroy, destroy fallout. Right. And uh, of course, fallouts now are Tuesday and Wednesdays, uh, basically for you non-comedy fans. <laughs> they're like a jam night at the end of the regular show. Uh, any paid regular can go up if there's time. A uh, few more names. And these are just like random names coming to me right now. Jason Galern. Jason's a comics comic. He's uh, he's funny, but I never felt like he was so serious about only being a comedian that I had to choose him over other decisions. Jeff Richards. Jeff is brilliant, but he doesn't always self discipline, so he doesn't do he doesn't always go out there to show you how good he is. He got into it. He got into a thing where he's just. He he did so good so fast that he thought any idea he thought of at all was funny, and sometimes it didn't work. So that's why he became risky. Theo Vaughn. Yeah, Theo just he goes out there and delivers. He's just he's confident. He's got good pace and good timing. He just I could tell right away just that the industry was just gonna love him. Well, he's amazing. Well, I just thought I just knew they would because he. He's got all the pieces in there, and he's got some alpha energy. I had a, what I call an alpha club. There's guys who have more, you know, a little bit more male type energy than other people. Now I'm going to go with a few non-paid regulars. Maybe comics you're thinking of passing, you didn't for whatever reason, or they were on the bubble. Jason Tebow. I never knew what to do with Jason Tebow because I knew he's a great guy and everyone liked him. But just to show you, look what he, was going on with him and Red Band in the show, and then when Tony came in, look what happened to it. What was the one change? Wasn't Red Band? It was Tony instead of Jason Tebow. Jason tried to make it about himself, not about a point. But he is funny, and if Adam were wanting to use him or bring him in, he could be used at a certain point in the show. Not the only thing is, is he, I couldn't think of him at every every point of the show, which is what you would hope someone. That's just kind of that you're you could go on any time. Even though Bobby Lee wouldn't want to go later, he could still do it. You know what I mean? Oh, I don't like going on. Uh first but i do it i don't know how good i am at it but i would think you'd be good at it well i mean i'm uh and i don't want to talk too much about myself but you know dry and sarcastic which i think is well maybe keep from the part of the conversation we've had today something i'd remind you mitzi that it's job so you want to take it on like you're going to figure out how to do that the way you would do it how would i be an opener she said anybody should be able to open. I saw Sebastian and all these other people have to open when they didn't even think they were going to do it anymore, and they still did a great job. Well, I believe still, that. If you're a good comic, you can go on should first be, or after Don yeah, Barris. should be able to go on anytime. So, Tommy, this is the part, uh, and you are definitely coming back. Uh, I'd love to. Uh, anytime you want to talk, just you got my numbers. Uh, <laughs> where can people, I, I don't know if you like people contacting you, or uh, do you have like a, I don't think you're on Twitter or Facebook, are you? I've been laying low on purpose because, okay. of, because of the negative overtones of my leaving. I just didn't think it was necessary that I had to leave like that. Um, and then, you know, I had some, I just had haters. And and from what I was told, rumors came around about me that were brought right out. It was supposed to be confidentiality, but rumors about me came right out from managers' mouths, and not. And I'll just say, not Eric or Adam, but other people. They just came right out and said things they they shouldn't have said or assumed, and this and that. So it created a bad vibe. So I laid low. I have not over modernized. Um, 
Do you want to tell people where that show is Sunday nights? Well, where- Sunday nights, I'm just going over to a show in, uh, it's on La Brea and Sunset, the Trey Theater. Uh, Laura, who used to work at the store, puts it together. And I've just been, it's been kind of like a go up and feedback type thing. And then I play my guitar a little bit and sing because it's an opportunity to do so. But I will say this, if, if someone wants to contact me, I, they can. I, I'm not trying to hide from anybody. To be honest with you, what I went through more is, you know, I have a lot of people called me when I left and I have people's phone numbers. And sometimes I'll give someone a call and a lot of them don't call me back. I don't have the power to do anything for them. I thought they might want to hear from me, but they don't seem like they want to. That's been kind of the hurtful part for me. Well, that's... Unbelievably, of all people, though, you know, I actually had... I ran into Chris D'Elia at the coffee bean, and he was really warm and said kind things to me maybe about four months ago, and that was nice. And then I called Gerard Carmichael the day his show came out, and I just was hoping to get his voicemail to tell him congratulations, and he answered the phone. And he talked to me and that made me feel good. But it also made me realize too, that there's a genuineness there going on with him. You know? oh, he's uh, like, he's so nice. Yeah, but he's genuine. I mean, he just, he's like you can't be real. He had so many people that he wanted to talk to, but whether he thought it meant something to me or whatever, because when he was coming along, he would call me even from back home. We would talk about what was going on with him. I mean, you know, when he was an open micer, they used to call him the future. <laughs> he was identified by the comedian's, themselves right right so i i think he's great so um yeah uh no i can be contacted i don't know what i how about if you just let me know if people want to contact okay me. Well, if, it, if they want to contact me i mean i'll give you if it's not hard to get my cell number but, well i won't yeah. give it out to just anyone but well, uh, I, I did get some mock calls one guy called me for a long time and, and imitated me you know like well yeah you know tommy talks like james cagney yeah yeah I never saw myself like that, but... Full disclosure, and I'll say this to your face, I have done a Tommy impression. Oh, yeah. Well, my favorite was Mac Lindsay. I made Mac Lindsay a paid regular for making a Tommy impression. No, he was was great. I think... uh, the three best at it are uh, Rick Ingram, who does. Just, I feel like I'm talking to you, and uh, people well, he still he still sees me on my street, you know. Yeah, because you guys are neighbors, and I think uh, I've been said to be pretty good at it. Um, I heard Jeff Richards used to do me. Jeff Richards is he does the best. Uh, he does this conversation improv between you and Dean, the old manager, and. It's frightening because yeah. he's got Dean. Well, he's genius. Don't that's the reason I don't want to be, be too negative on Jeff. He is a genius. No, I owe unbelievable. Say this about Jeff Richards. He introduced me to Rob Schneider. He's gotten me pretty much every good gig I've ever gotten. So I'm uh, I love Jeff Richards. So uh, no, he's so talented. He's elevated. You know what I mean? Like he's floating in another at, uh, stratosphere. That's no, he's. Uh, I would do. Uh, I would go on first, and it'd be Jeff and Rob, and there'd be a lot of nights where I had great sets, and I'd be like, "Follow that, Jeff." And uh, five minutes after he started, I felt like I had bombed. Like it was like, "Wow, I got a lot of work to do." But uh, guys, this has been uh, probably the most uh, anticipated episode I've ever looked forward to doing because uh, it's been a year. Jesus, I don't know, over a year since me and year, Tommy. Year and four months since I was there. But he, yeah, it's, and since we've been in the same room together, and. Uh, you know, although I still probably don't agree with some things, uh, you know, in terms of me personally, I didn't want to 
turn this into Tommy versus Earl. Uh, you have the right to your feelings, and I and I'm not saying I'm right about everything when it comes to a person. It's just what I was feeling at the time. And then I only thing I got to say in my last defense, which I mentioned earlier, is my last six months, dude. I wasn't not like me. All right, I was having a lot of problems at home. My dog was dying. A lot of bad relationship stuff. I was in a weakened state. I reached out to the powers that be above me, telling them that I was having a lot of stress and I needed help. And instead of getting help, I got taken down. Well, let that me was, say- that was like, uh, so that was, and I'm not saying that they don't, that they didn't need the changes. Maybe they wanted to do things different. And I, and I, maybe I'm an era. I used to always say I was, I was a, I always used to say I am a bridge between what it was and what it's going to be. That's what I used to say of myself. So well, I guess that came true. <laughs> well, this is probably the weirdest way to end a podcast, but this is when I I mentioned the time where the three comics were bugging you at the, the booth. I'm like, wow, this guy's job is hard. I was, uh, I don't know how else to say this other than to say it, but I was uh, going to the bathroom in the belly room, uh, uh, number two. And uh, it's the only way to explain it. And you were on the phone with, I, I think your girlfriend, and I, I could hear every word, and uh, you know, I won't say what you guys were talking about, but it was the first time I ever thought of you as like, wow, he's a person, yeah. like he has problems, yeah. And it was a pretty severe, you know, uh, re- just an inner relationship problem, and that made me go, wow, uh, uh, you know, he's he's actually human, because I think you know people's perception of you, at least mine was. You know, I'd kind of sheepishly walk up the stairs. I'd see you in the booth. I'd see a line of comics kissing your ass. Some genuine, most not. Uh, and I was like, geez, how do I even approach them? And most nights I wouldn't. I don't even think they were kissing my ass. They were just trying to ask me how they could get what they wanted. But I think I disagree with you there because I saw it work for some people who just would say anything to you to just get in with you. And I just, I can't do that. Well, I mean, I know that everyone thinks that's how Dean Del Rey did it, but Polly validated me on Dean. I wasn't sure what to do with him. And I told him everyone hated me that I was having around, but I said this to Dean. I said, Dean, I'm going to put you on the employee list. And he goes, really? Wow. God, thanks. I said, you know why? I said, you're a bulldozer, dude. You're not going to be stopped, are you? And I tell you what, that, hey, what's up, that act, it dropped. And his face got real serious. And he goes, no. So he said right to me that he wasn't going to be stopped. I knew he wasn't going to be. And I wasn't talking about Dean. I know, but uh, it was, he was an example of people I got a hard time about from people that he was getting things that he shouldn't have been getting before he was ready. I'm not saying he's not ready now. He's ready now. Well, I'll give him this. His work, He's the one who really got me started into podcasting once I saw how it got him a fan base from, oh, you yeah. know, from a comic who was completely unknown to a, a loyal fan base. I'm like, wow, I got to get on this racket. And uh, his uh, networking skills are uh, on a level. Uh, I'd put him up there with Whitney Cummings in terms of he can walk into a room of 100 people and figure out the one person who can help him. Yeah. Go right towards that person. He has got, he is, he's the master at that stuff of, of conditioning. I mean, I'm too shy for that, uh, or just too much of a pussy, whatever you want to call it, but it's working for him. I so. just wanted to work on his artistry. So I had some frank conversations with him. And then the one thing that he did is he showed that late night in the main room, not the OR, was where he finally let go right. and stopped trying to be such a people pleaser. And then it's not that he doesn't please us, but he says what he wants now. And I heard him say some stuff to some people that was like, 
uh, he was summing them up pretty accurately. And it wasn't, it wasn't mean, but it was, and then yet they're laughing with you at you putting them down a little bit. Oh, that's it. Or we did a few podcasts together. Uh, and I was surprised at how, uh, maybe aggressive is not the right word, but how upfront he was with our guests. And I'm like, wow, I don't think I could have asked that question right out of the shoe. He had to let go into that. So just remember this about yourself too. Not that I want to make you mean, but you let go into what you really say. Quote from Mitzi Shore. People already know it, but quote from Mitzi Shore. Stand-up comedy is one of the last arenas of free speech. Quote, unquote. And that's probably the best way to end this episode. Tommy Morris will be back, I can guarantee. I don't ask many people back. We didn't even get into the music and, and you know different aspects of comedy, but uh, everyone's been asking about this podcast. Um, Tommy, I think... Thanks, uh, Earl. Thanks for having me here. It's been great to talk about this stuff. It's good for me, too. Trust me. It's well, you know... Bottled up. When And I must thank Laura uh, for setting this up. Um, she was instrumental in getting the two of us together. And uh, Well, you know, she worked there, and one of the reasons I've remained friends with her is because she, she actually, before I left, reminded me what it was that I was doing there. She would actually say to me, because I would say to her, I've said, I, sometimes I just feel like I'm a loser. You know, I, I've been here, I do this, and I help, but I, I'm not really getting anywhere. I see people become stars. I mean, I get something from it, but I don't know what. And she goes, oh, my God. She goes, that's the last thing you are here. She told me what she thought she saw that I was doing. So since I left, she has always kept me in the back of her mind as a person that could contribute um, what I learned from Mitzi and stuff in other ways. Well, uh, I thank you for coming on. I, I think uh, people will be pleasantly surprised at how you and I got along. Because <laughs> I think, uh, you know, a lot of people, when I said, hey, I'm getting Tommy on the podcast, their number one uh, first reaction was, you're going to rip into him, huh? You're going to get him. And I was like, I, no, I'm genuinely curious as to uh, how he approached things up there. Sure. And I can be ripped into. I don't, I don't mind people doing it because I'll just say what I feel back. It's okay. Well, no, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think when uh, you were, uh, when you left the comedy store, uh, everyone was coming up to me going, you're glad, aren't you? Uh, yeah. And I would say, not really. I mean, I think my chances of getting past were, uh, at least what I knew then versus today were better. I was like, okay, well, maybe I just wasn't for him. And uh, now, Things just always were about time. That's all. Oh, yeah. And then people wanting to know and, what's going you know, what's going on with me. Like Stephanie Simbari would always <laughs> They just want to know when they can get to what they want. And you just weren't one of those people, which is cool in a way. Some ways I wish I was, to be honest with you, because uh Well, you have to be aggressive now. Remember the talent, work ethic, and desire. So you got the work ethic as far as going up, but the desire is the part where you're willing to go and take on and assimilate things like you have talked about with Dean Del Rey. You take it out. You got to make your own way now. You go for it. You go. You know it, it's great. And, and the thing, think of all the years you've already put in there. The thing I would say to you, even though you, there's always new heights, you're ready. I mean, you're ready. Like yeah, think. you're ready. You're ready to go out and see. It's not about like, oh, I got to wait till I'm ready. You're ready. After 15 years, I sure hope so. But it's a good time, Tommy. Right. You will be back, uh, guys. Inappropriate Earl. It's on SoundCloud and iTunes. Please, for the oh, love of God. Oh, oh, one last thing too. If, if anybody wants to hear my songs, not that they care. I'm on SoundCloud too. I, it's it's uh, you, it was SoundCloud.com, and then enter Tom Morris songwriter, and there's six songs that I've recorded 
that I wrote inside the comedy store in the main room of the, alone to the ghosts, sometimes a celebrity, sometimes nobody, who knows, but they're on there. And I have a little thing called uh, Songs from My Soul. It's the order that I like you to listen to. So do that if you want. Please do that because I know a lot of people think, oh, Earl's not going to plug anything Tommy does. I will because, you know, I, I said in, when I started, when I hit record, I enjoyed our many conversations about 80s metal movies. So, uh, you know, I don't, I never hated Tommy. I just, uh, you know, when you're an artist and you have to deal with the other side of the fence, you're not going to see eye to eye every time. So it was more just a difference of opinion. Obviously, I'm going to have him back. So I'm sorry to those of you tuning into this, expecting me to shit on him, but uh, it didn't happen. So well, I hope maybe it'll happen next episode. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> Let me get some more questions. Uh, but uh, I hope you guys enjoy this. Please share it, retweet it, tell all your comedy friends because I really think this has been a great insight into a man often misunderstood and maybe understood. It depends where you were with him. And one last thing, too. Don't forget, and this is the truth, guys, handpicked by Mitzi Shore. <laughs>